need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, as always, it's Andrew Greenwald! Hey, buddy. Hey, man. What's hey, up? It's hey, Thursday. Hey, champ. Andy, we have a, a fun show today. We're going to talk a little bit about some big moves from our, the big homies in Silicon Valley. Apple, just putting the chess pieces hey. on the board. This, this and, the whole day today is chess moves. And just in to continue with the theme, we're also going to talk about I would go as far to say it's our new favorite show, Queen's Gambit on Netflix. So uh, some some entertainment business news in the top, and then we're going to get into uh, Queen's Gambit, the Netflix series, on the second half of the show. Let's get into it. Touch your clock. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, Restrictions all apply. See website for details. All right, man. What's up? How are you? How are I'm you great. doing? Are you are you keeping it together? Oh, um, we're we're going to start with uh, with personal corner. Yeah, to the extent that you feel comfortable sharing, sure. I mean, I mean this yeah. is in a lot of ways like I, when we get to talk to each other. That is true. That is true. That, that's only because you blocked my number. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I'll put it this way. We're going to talk about it in detail at the end of the show. Do I like Queen's Gambit on Netflix because of its brilliant direction, its fascinating story, its compelling performances, its stunning production design? Or do I just spend the whole time fixated on the giant candy-sized glass bottle of tranquilizer pills? <laughs> yeah, which it's feature a really good heavily show. Yeah. in the show. And... Have there been times over this election season and pandemic season where I'm like, I just want to swallow some stuff that'll make me feel fuzzy? Like, yeah, that exists. So what would you actually, so in Queen's Gambit, there's this recurring mm-hmm. image of Beth Harmon, who's the, the main character of the show, an orphan who becomes this chess prodigy. She keeps mm-hmm. taking tranks and then keeping herself awake for a little while. And when mm-hmm. she looks up at her ceiling from her bed, mm-hmm. she sees chess moves. She sees a chess board with these mm-hmm. chess moves going. What would you be seeing? Well, there was a period in my life when I I can't say it was with the help of, you know, off-brand green tranquilizer pills, but it was definitely with the help of uh, green yingling bottles where I might not be able to drift off to sleep right away. And what I would do would be lie on my back and think about the jerseys of the 2000-2001 Philadelphia 76ers. Right. And just try try to name all the guys and like think of like... Yes, but then I'd also be like, 
I think Aaron McKee and Allen Iverson are really friends. Like, I, like I really think they care about each other. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like George Lynch isn't just a defender in the paint. I feel like he's a defender of these guys in real life. So, like, making yeah, these right. like very charming, like we're all friends stories about people. It, that's my chest. Mm-hmm. I, I I would say. Um, what what what's coming down off the ceiling for you? Uh, the second congressional district in Nebraska. <laughs> That look that figures very just, strongly for I'm me. I'm leaning into it. I'm leaning into the chaos of just like let's go, let's get the I map mean, up. Conraki, get at me. I mean, I, I just you know, I'd like to retract any negative statements I made about the Atlanta Braves or their fans because I really want Georgia. No, to be completely honest, it's it's pretty sad. I just think about if I'm playing a season of FIFA, I think very very seriously about whoever I'm managing in FIFA and like the players and like where they stand and like, you know, like their tactics and stuff like that. And often a lot about like whether they're emotionally happy with my leadership, even though they exist in a video game, but that usually does the trick. It runs counter. And I'm learning this because in this, this, the script project that I'm working on at the moment, my deep, deep desire for people that I don't know slash fictional creations to get along runs counter to good, uh, conflict-driven drama. Right. right. You know, like that that doesn't necessarily work out. And it's actually a tribute, I would say, to some of the great comedy writers of our time, like Mike Schur, who manages to make shows about people who are fundamentally decent and like each other, and yet he still somehow manages to, to like, create like drama tin- out of that tinder stuff, and yeah. flint enough strife to get to get the story. I think that that's probably fair to say. I, I, I think that over the course of the time that we've been doing this podcast, the prevalent style of television has been the antihero has been re- wrestling mm. drama from very difficult characters who are very antisocial or perhaps are exerting their will in less than pleasant ways. But I think leading up to that for a lot, a lot of television was about, although they had slight differences, these people like go to, to go to the bar together. These ladies, well, that- they're golden. No. That, that you know, this is really the magic of podcasting, Chris. Because look at us—we're finding something here in the moment. We're we're like it's like free jazz. It's it's all happening. We're riffing, and you're speaking to something that is so essential to long form entertainment, and that uh, specifically, I mean, TV shows. And you don't necessarily have to do this in movies, although when it happens, it's really nice, uh, and and we can cite all kinds of examples, but. Generally, you're in and you're out, so you could spend time with more prickly people. Or you don't need to bend the curve towards understanding them or empathizing with them. But in TV, yeah, the investment is you, such. You kind of have to like them, you know. And I think that there are people, and, and we're going to have them on to, to, to yell at us. But uh, you know, our, our pal Sam Esmail has been taking issue mm-hmm. very loudly in private messages with some of our um, perhaps election slash pandemic fueled desires or yearning Our for television of attitudes towards the art of television. He Let's doesn't like this there. at all. He's very yeah. angry at us. And yet we can joke about how we want shows that are like not taxing so we can do the laundry. But I don't really think that's what we're asking for all the time. Mm-mm. I do think that there are shows though, even ones that pass muster, right? For critical consensus or even, um, you know, snob consensus. You liked them. Mm-hmm. even though you shouldn't. So hanging out at the pork store with Tony and Polly Walnuts and whatever is really pleasurable. Sure. Then they go murder people and you feel you feel conflicted. You know, uh, Walter White and Jesse, same thing. Mad Men certainly was an office sitcom for half of this its screen time. 
um, even though the people may have hated each other or were often actively loathsome. And mm-hmm. I think that's remains the incredible thing about succession, which is that, you know, it came up slightly in our conversation of the undoing, but these are monsters uh, generally, or maybe just lowercase a assholes at their sure. best in milieus that are not relatable. Mm-hmm. But what makes the show so compelling and worthy, I think, is that we love being with them and we see their humanity even when they are screwing up. And so that, that they're, the best TV finds that very tricky balance between strife and conflict and reality and also, come on, here's your, here's your, here's your, here's your pill at the end of a hard day. Here's your, green, your nice green pill. Lie down. Um, we are going to get to Queen's Gambit, but I thought we could spend some time talking a little bit about some of the headlines. Andy's just been, the, the great aggregator has returned you know, the great blogger of our time, the the quiet man. My text feed is essentially like, um, is like the Entertainment Weekly, you know, or it's like a trade of its own because Andy gets up, he gets a little bit of that Colombian in him, that dark uh, roast. Coffee. <laughs> coffee. I, I prefer a lighter roast. Thank you very much, Christopher. And he just starts firing off links. Firing off links. So I want to well, give a dealer's choice here because I think... I do want to jump in and just give some context. There's a a bunch of Apple stuff that I want to talk about, but go ahead. Yeah, just to say, there's not much I can do when I'm also monitoring a social studies Zoom, but I can aggregate. You know what I mean? Like that feels like I'm putting something into the world, specifically your world. And I don't want to cause any more friction between us. You know, obviously this has been a challenging time for our relationship. (laughs) Because you are bearish on the second congressional district of Iowa. Well, I think J.D. Shulton has a chance. Um, so then, so so Chris, he's he's receiving these entertainment bulletins mm-hmm. with, you know, I think you're like, oh, oh, wow. Okay, neat. Or where are you getting all this? Or whatever. You're reacting to them. And yeah. then yesterday, I made the mistake. I crossed wires. And I was like, this isn't my normal bailiwick, Chris. But- Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey has been hired as the president of the 76ers, thus doing one of the more dramatic 180s of a franchise and my personal fandom and interest in a franchise in recorded history. Yeah. And it was crickets. It was crickets. Well, that's because I was podcasting about it. Well, that's what happens when you when you try to bring the heat to an insider flamethrower. I know. It's like, was, going to, I, it's, it's like going to Liz Smith with a bit of gossip about the New York media industry, you know, in the 1980s. It's just like, I know, I know. Man. It's true. I wanted to, I wanted to play. I wanted um, to be down. A couple of the stories that came out this week, there was obviously some stuff about a Netflix reshuffle on the executive level and Netflix's uh, interest in building out an Assassin's Creed expanded universe, which I, I wish Finally. them the best of luck with that. Uh, there was a couple of Apple stories. There was yeah, one. I want to focus on these. I actually talked a little bit about this with Sean and Amanda on the big pick for the 2013 oh. movie draft pod was well, the bond, well. the bond story, which we can, we can still address. And then there was two deals that they made one with Nicholas Stoller to make a rom-com. I would imagine limited series called mm-hmm. platonic that would reunite uh, Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne, who I found delightful in neighbors and another deal that was made for, uh, bringing John Stewart back to our screens on a kind of regular basis in a current affairs commentary show. Um, which one do you want to start with? Because Apple is back. Well, I, I wanted to talk uh, about all of it, basically, because one of the big questions that we 
tried to tackle on the podcast and that Hollywood was trying to digest generally is Apple has all the money in on the planet. And so whatever room they walk into, they are the elephant in that room. The question is, what does the elephant want to do in the room? Does it want to just hang out in the room and happy to be there? Does it want to step on the crudite platter? Like, what does it actually want to do? Sure. And the launch of Apple TV Plus has been fine, I guess, because it doesn't matter for them. You know, it's not affecting their bottom line, whether people are watching it or not, whether their ambitious and expensive slate of originals has made any negligible return on investment or whether they're even looking at it that way. I th- we've thought that it's notable that a show like Ted Lasso has seemingly become their breakout hit when that doesn't really fit in with certainly the, the first one since morning show. Yeah. Yeah, and, and with morning show I you know morning show was going to get attention no matter what it was. Yeah, I mean Ted Lasso is largely it's Sudeikis, it's Juno Temple and then largely unknowns, you know, in yeah, terms so of I, an, I, an American audience. Morning Show makes sense in the same way that House of Cards made sense because you want to make a loud, noisy splash that's going to get covered because of celebrity power. And in, yeah. regardless, I, I, I still struggle. And, and there's no way of knowing because they're not releasing their data, whether people, people, you know, the great Americans who are going to come out in record numbers on Tuesday, watch that show. I don't know. They're going to um, come out to watch Ted Lasso or they're going to come out to watch They're going to vote Lasso. I, on the other hand, am writing in Ronald Reagan on my ballot. Um, so anyway, and, and by the way, probably shouldn't talk more about Ted Lasso, which just got renewed for a third season that I presumably also won't be watching. But Peacock's well, they, got to... They've got to, they got to bring that, that ring back to Mordor. So they have to get but, that third season in there. But Peacock's got to be kicking themselves. Like uh, that, yeah, I mean, you would know better than I would. I sometimes like I'm like, how is this not on HBO Max? And you're like, well, it's Paramount meets this meets that, you know. And well, Universal Television has a piece of the show, so it's not like they just didn't hold the rights to it. It is what I would imagine is a complicated deal because it's Universal and Warner Brothers co pro mm-hmm. for Apple. So they didn't just give up on it. They were probably outbid. And and as we've tried to explain to people who might not be following it this closely, studios, all these streamers have their own studios now, but some of them sell elsewhere. So like- So you're safe for now, a universal lawyer guy who didn't put that in stipulation. Yeah, well, also just to keep it in universal and our buddy Sam, like Sam's deal, like my own, is at UCP, part of universal, but homecoming went to Amazon. You know, mm-hmm. and he's doing a show for ABC. So that that's all kosher, but I still feel like just the, the DNA of the show feels like more of what Peacock is doing. Anyway, right. here's what I want to say about Apple, Chris. Are you ready? <laughs> Are you excited for this? Am I, am I excited for your take or for Apple? It's for my take about Apple. Um, I can't wait. We have been joking a lot about Peacock wanting to, to do the Jack Donaghy advice of making it 1997 again through science or magic. Apple, I think, wants to make it 2007 again through science or magic. They seem to be chasing headlines that reflect a culture that kind of tapped out early Obama. And you're going to get headlines that way, and you're going to get talent. I don't know if you're getting the shows that will move the needle in significant ways in 2020, 2021. But as I said at the beginning, I don't know what needle they're moving or what even instrument they're using to judge things. And so the examples to, to, to back this up, it's not just being like, oh, there's a Tom Hanks movie out there. Let's spend $300 million to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or there's a James Bond movie, let's kick the tires, which they did, and maybe we'll buy it. Um, and we'll get that one hit of juice from it and then nothing. And then what? Right. And then it doesn't live for you with you forever. But the the types of shows that it's buying, and I'm thinking specifically of Shrink Next Door based on a podcast that was greenlit straight to series with Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd. Um, Nick Stoller, who has directed a lot of comedies and specifically mentioned- and stuff, yeah. And Neighbors uh, with Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne. By the way, I love Neighbors. I love those two together. Could be great. Sure. Terrific. Makes sense. Specifically, John Stewart, too. Like, we're going to get... So all of this, and, and the deal is not... It's with his production company, so it, he might do some hour-long specials or a recurring thing, but it's also just like, we're in the John Stewart business. Sure. So he might produce stuff or develop... And it c- came via Richard Plepler, which is right. Ex- right, who used to run... Uh, HBO for many, many years uh, on the business side. So all of this seems to be creating a very starry constellation um, that was once dominant in the sky when Apatovian comedy was dominant. You know what I mean? Like, it's Mm -hmm. not a bad bet on any of these people. Everyone we've mentioned, you and I are fans of and have been extremely enamored with at various times in their career. But it all does seem to be in the service of a type of entertainment that has fallen out of the multiplexes Mm -hmm. and doesn't seem to have gotten much traction elsewhere in the TV slash streaming marketplace. Yeah, I mean, that's why the Bond thing was the most interesting to me because I still think that where all of these other companies, and if you read the Hollywood Reporter story, I talked about this with Sean, but if you read the, the THR story about the perspective bond sale to Apple, which is, is does not sound like it's going to happen, but the, even the fact that it got to the trades means like it's interesting who put it out there and why. I think Apple definitely comes off as the, we could do it if we wanted to side of it. And whereas MGM is like, we need like a loan to get through yeah. to next year to get, release this movie. And that they're essentially made, they made this bond movie, it seems like on debt. You know, they, they essentially mm-hmm. leverage the company to make a $250 million James Bond movie just for the movie. And then it's $50 million that they've spent on publicity for a movie that didn't come out. And then you have to imagine they're going to have to ramp that machine back up again. Yes. One of these days, on one of these movies, in one of these situations, Apple is going to swoop in. And whether or not... I wonder whether or not that changes what it becomes. I wonder whether or not Apple becomes... Honestly, like a a, a a destination for movies where you go and you pay thirty five. We've talked about this thirty five forty dollars for a twenty four hour rental of No Time to Die. Maybe it's not going to be the Bond movie. Maybe maybe they can't justify spending half a billion dollars on a Bond movie. But one of these times, they're going to get the right movie and the right studio and the right precarious position where they're like, we got to get this off our books. It's not going to be Greyhound. You know what I mean? It's not going to be News of the World or whatever. But one of these movies will be like, I can't believe they pulled that off. Well, the, 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 I agree. I think the and other, I don't know what happens then. But the other tricky thing about it, as you said, MGM has Bond. Like, that's what they've got. And the, the movie industry is, as everyone knows, you don't come to this podcast to learn about it. Like, it is a incredibly high stakes feast or famine game. And Mm -hmm. the game is essentially blockbusters where you spend um, a quarter to a half a billion dollars making a movie with the expectation that it will make a billion. And then you do it again. And that's, those are the margins of that game. MGM doesn't own a streaming service. 
MGM doesn't have a theme park. They don't sell toys, you know? So it's a very, obviously a new Bond movie with um, Daniel Craig and Rami Malek and directed by Kerry Fukunaga. That has a different patina of quality and, and it also a very different um, audience than a live action Mulan. Mm-hmm. But a live action Mulan was extremely expensive and extremely important to Disney. But Disney also has... The, uh, the arm. They have the arm. Yeah. They have the end-to-end marketing or whatever that they sure. can say, okay, well, we will put it in this box instead and we'll charge you, as you said, $30 for exclusive access and then it'll live on our service forever, blah, blah, blah. They can't, the numbers just don't work for, you know, I mean, Apple could spend half a billion dollars on it. Sure. But MGM would be giving up yeah. if they did. Yeah. And then, and, and then like they say in the, in the Hollywood Reporter piece, it's like, can they take their toe out of the pool once they dip it in? Once you, once you mm-hmm. teach people that this is how you can watch a Bond movie, that this is how mm-hmm. you could watch Wonder Woman, that this is how you could watch whatever, Black Widow, yeah. do they want to go back to the theater? And what happens if, I, I think the thing that will determine it is obviously the thing that's determining everything, which is COVID. And if movie theaters don't open up next year for a variety of reasons, whether they've all gone out of business before they can anyway, or whether there's just not a confidence that you can go into a room with people coughing while you're watching a movie and not worry about like getting fatally ill... I mean, somebody's going to break soon and someone will just be like, you know what? Take the Fast and Furious movie then. The other thing that's worth keeping an eye on that I thought was notable in its inclusion in the THR story was the hefty back ends that are promised to stars and directors yeah. profit participation, basically. Right. This is this is an extremely old practice. It's very normal. It's points I'm, on the package. I, yeah. I'm not bringing it up to suggest that I am for or against it. But I'll say that it is an accepted part of doing business in the blockbuster space, and it gets stars involved, and it gets them extremely rich. And part of the story was that one of the things that wouldn't be accounted for uh, if they sold the Bond movie to Apple is that Fukunaga, uh, Craig, and Rami are promised profit participation or or box office bonuses. And my assumption is those deals probably have some sort of pay or play. Like if the movie tanks, they still get a certain something payout because they were, they probably took less upfront or whatever it was. Sure. And as movies go into streaming or as movies are just subsumed into entertainment conglomerates from start to finish, that removes the back end. And that's something that has already happened in television and it's affecting things. Do you view that as a good or bad thing? As a writer producer. Right. It's about who is excited about residual checks when they appear. Um, well, are you saying that that would affect residuals, or do you, is it purely? Um, for me, it's, it's so they're different things. You yeah, don't get right. res, movie stars right. don't get residuals on movies, but the, they get them if they play on TV, right? Not necessarily. Oh. Producers would, but what I mean is, in the sense of exp, the, getting involved with something or with someone with the promise of later profits, it's not a, it's not a one to one comparison. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, I'll use I statements and I am very happy and very content. But if I had created a show for the USA Network 15 years ago, mm-hmm. rerunning that show on the USA Network would have been a huge part of them getting it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And obviously it would have demanded a different show and blah, blah. It wouldn't have been a 10-episode thing. But that was part of doing business was not just that you were fairly compensated at the start, but that it would live on. And then when USA sold it to Netflix, it would be a secondary sale. And when they sold it around the world, it would be a tertiary sale. And increasingly, you know, if you sell a show as a writer or as a producer to to Netflix, it's one and done. It's one Because they buy it for the whole world forever. 
And so they pay 125% or whatever. And I am both too green as a participant in the industry and not versed enough in the financials to comment one way or another if that's affected people's decision-making because people are generally just grateful to work and get paychecks. But if movies start to become end-to-end like, and it's, well, they have been. So the Hemsworth brothers' participation in Extraction, right? I'd be very curious what his paycheck was in that movie versus the, a Thor movie. So the thing that jumps out at me when you describe all this is how many movies I love mm-hmm. who have the same Genesis story of, we would not be able to get this movie made were it not for the participation of this star. Mm-hmm. This star agreed to come on for scale and obviously like points, you know, were the movie to do well. All, this all is the essentially Har- Harvey Keitel and Reservoir Dogs, Eric Stoltz and Kicking and, Str- and Screaming, all the big stars. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, that's essentially how Usual Suspects got made. That is essentially yes. how, you, you know, Reservoir Dogs got made. That is probably a lot of what the Blumhouse model is, is to have Kevin Bacon or Ethan Hawke do a movie Mm-hmm. probably not get a ton of money, but when that movie mm-hmm. is made for 5 million and makes 65 or 70, Ethan Hawke does very well off of that. You know, like that model is what a lot of modern movie making is because otherwise stars are going to be forced to choose projects that they know are bona fide hits. And then My- you're going to start getting a very homogenous product, more homogenous than we already do. I would love to get a real Hollywood fixer on to talk about this. Cause I think that's really interesting. My, my, guess is, and this doesn't answer the whole question, but maybe a piece of it, increasingly you'll see stars join a project and immediately become a producer, producer. or an executive producer. Yeah, I guess that's already and, happening, and, right? And what that would do, like for example, Palm Springs, the Hulu hit from this year was the hit at um, at Sundance, right? The last film festival of the world. <laughs> and uh, they sold it for a record amount of money at the festival, because that was the goal, for it to be then released in theaters by Neon and on Hulu by Hulu. It never went to theaters. But because Andy Samberg and and his Lonely Island partners were producers, they were party to the paycheck that they got um, initially. And then I don't know, then, is there a secondary, maybe someone with better intel than us can then comment on this. When they make the decision a few months later to say, we're going to forego a theatrical release. Are there payouts that have to be made? Does sure. Hulu have to buy out its theatrical partner? I don't know, resulting in more money. But I, I mean, I, I hope people don't mind being in the weeds with us because when it come, when stuff like this starts to affect the decisions that are made creatively and what yeah. gets made, I think it's worth pursuing. Um, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Not Assassin's Creed expanded you? <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. 
So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, Andy, we're back and this is going to be a pleasure to talk about because uh, a bunch of people on our Facebook page, a couple of friends have texted me about this over the last couple of weeks where they're like, have you seen Queen's Gambit? Have you seen Queen's Gambit? And I, I don't think, I knew that Scott Frank was involved. And for those who don't know, Scott Frank is an amazing screenwriter who wrote the scripts for Out of Sight, Steven Soderbergh's uh, Elmore Leonard adaptation. He wrote the screenplay for Minority Report. He wrote the screenplay for Little Man Tate and recently oversaw, uh, I believe directed and wrote um, the Netflix miniseries Godless, which I, we, I talked to Scott about that, I think, um, last year, two years ago. It's hard to remember. So he's back on Netflix with this, show called The Queen's Gambit. It's based on a 1983 Walter Tevis novel. Walter Tevis, for those who don't know, is a really interesting character in his own right, um, who wrote the novels The Color of Money, The Hustler, and The Man Who Fell to Earth, all three of which have been adapted for screen. The uh, Color of Money is a personal favorite of mine. And Scott adapted, largely wrote, I think he's got some co-writers on some, uh, some of the later episodes, but I think entirely directed this show, which is about an orphan turned who turns into a child chess prodigy, who turns into a troubled young adult chess prodigy. I've watched three episodes. Andy, I think you've watched two. And this is actually going to be a difficult show to talk about because I think its brilliance is largely invisible and in some ways hard to articulate. I'll throw it over to you just because I don't want to prattle on and we can get into what we like about it. It stars Anya Taylor-Joy uh, in, in a great performance as Beth Harmon and has just a lot of that, guys. A lot of... I didn't know they even acted in the case of Marielle Heller, but is easily one of my favorite shows of the year and has been an absolute delight to watch the last couple of episodes over the course of this week. You tell me what you think. Totally blindsided and shocked and pleased by this show. I did not know Scott Frank was involved. I love that Scott Frank was involved. Um, I hope we talk to him again because someone who we think of as being an exemplar of crime thriller witty heist, the stuff that we generally like, and he wrote a really good thriller called Shaker, a novel mm -hmm. a couple of years ago too, is doing what we also love and wish we could see more of, which is genre hopping, you know, and making a glorious Western and now making this, which just doesn't seem to be in his wheelhouse, but totally is. And so 
I was delighted to discover that. I was not drawn to it because I am not, I'm not a prodigy, nor am I drawn to chess by nature. I didn't think I was. Another reason why discovering this and just falling totally in love with it feels so good because it was so unexpected. Yeah. Um, I think that it's worth saying at the top, I try not to read reviews of stuff that I'm you know, excited about getting into, but the sense that I have gotten from just scanning or seeing tweets is that, um, you know, it's seven episode, I believe, miniseries. It's Netflix, so each episode is 59 minutes. Um, Actually, three is only 45. Oh, thank God. Okay, so that's a good sign. But I think Alan Sepinwall was was using the show as an example of something that he's been pretty vocal about, which is that not everything needs to be this long. And mm-hmm. Netflix allows people to fill a lot of space in ways that might not serve the story. I so think I people say that, said the same thing about Godless in some ways. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll say, you know, maybe we will become less enamored with the show around episode five. Maybe it will run out of steam. It's very possible. Um, That should not stop you from watching it. And before we get into the specifics of why it's so great, I just want to say again, for all our carping about like the ways prestige TV is going wrong and how things are becoming more blockbustery and formulaic, I am so stoked on what this is and what this means. Because when I saw the billboards, I mistakenly assumed that this was a biopic that this was based on someone's autobiography from their life as a chess prodigy. And the thought of that was so dull to me. No offense to chess prodigies. I would say the same thing if they were race car drivers or whatever. Um, I find the way biopics work, especially in prestige television, as particularly stultifying. Like, now we're going to go to this plot point. Now we're going to go to this plot point. And it's not that. As Chris said, this is Scott Frank taking a book that has apparently a legion of admirers and fanatics, but one that I've never heard of, by an author that is, again, adored by those who know him, but not a bestseller uh, by any means, and he passed away a few years ago. Taking a great book and just adapting the shit out of it. Yeah. You know who it, it that's remi- so exciting to me. When I was watching it last night, I was trying to think, because the first thing you wrote to me when we when you first started watching this was Scott Frank is directing the shit out of this and I think you were like is Scott Frank the best director in the world like I, I can't believe how well this is directed it is yeah. gorgeous oh my god and so little is happening so little is going on there's so little setups in terms of uh well there are so little sets I would say I think that there's a real economy to moving through Beth's world like when we're at the orphanage in the early episode in the first episode it's just like here's the bedroom here's the janitor's basement where she learns how to play chess and here's like a classroom Mm -hmm. it's it's finding the most amount of space and the most amount of interesting ways to look at the most a limited world a limited sort of canvas and i was trying to think of like what it reminded me of because there are some dazzling wonders and there's some incredible like moments of hallucination on beth's part where she starts seeing these chess pieces move when she's robo tripping at night but I was like, what does this remind me of? And I, I know this is going to sound weird because it's not something that I think is like slap it on a poster. It reminds me of Sidney Pollock. It hmm. reminds me of being in the presence of someone who knows exactly where to tell mm-hmm. you what to look at and does not underestimate the intelligence of his audience. And that's what I think Scott's doing here. I have gotten conditioned for a variety of reasons while I've been watching TV this year. I think for good and for for better or for worse, to expect trauma in every fucking corner of any story I'm re- w- mm-hmm. watching. I am waiting for 
the father who look, gives a look over to his daughter to be a sexual predator. Yep. I am waiting for every interaction to wind up in some sort of place of sexual violence. I am waiting for any sort of eccentricities to be a harbinger of mental health problems, all of which are on their own. And even in some of the shows I'm kind of casually referring to really important and, or really interesting, but that's not the only thing to humanity for me. You know, trauma is not the only lens through which I think I look at humanity. And there, it's been crazy watching this show. I'm like, oh man, her foster dad's going to be, oh no, he's just an asshole. And then he disappears. You know, and, and I think the same thing is, is happening as I go into the series where I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad for Beth. And it's like, no, Beth's just a really interesting person who's fucked up the way everybody's fucked up. And she's, better at something than anybody else in the world is, but the things that she's sort of processing and the way that she's processing him are so much more nuanced and there's so much more gray there. Yeah, I want to talk about the the craft of the show, but I'm so glad you brought up this point. And our friend Sarah Lewitton tweeted about it, which also helped clarify my thoughts about it as well, which is to say, this is not a spoiler for people who haven't yet taken the journey of the show, but there's a moment in the first episode when young Beth, played by a different actress, Anya Taylor-Joy, basically becomes Beth in the second episode, mm-hmm. um, wanders down the stairs of her slightly creepy uh, orphanage in Kentucky. in The, the Methuen f- School, yeah. In the 40s, late 40s, of early, early 50s. And there is a janitor, the groundskeeper, the custodian is down there, played by Bill Camp, uh, who we love. King that guy. Mm-hmm. And... As Chris said, that's the moment when you're like, oh God, oh God. And actually what happens is he teaches her how to play chess and it changes her life. And he's a, he also is a complicated, not cuddly, but complicated figure. It mm-hmm. is not the one story, the one lens through which a lot of television, especially this year, for good contextual cultural reasons Absolutely. has been conditioning us to experience things. And that immediately set it apart just from other things that we've been encountering. That's not why I, we like this more, but it was notable. I just and, found myself engaging with different emotional responses that I've had yeah. to television. And, and so I, I, I want to shout out like the cinematographer, the DP here, Stephen Meisler, who makes everything look beautiful Uli Hanish is the production designer. I mean, this show does everything that I want shows to do in that the production design is extra. It is on one. When Mm. she is adopted by, as Chris said, the director, Mariel Heller, who plays a a woman who adopts Beth, gets to her house, her suburban home in, by this point, we're in the early 60s. It's Kentucky, yeah. It is stunning. The wallpaper alone is probably worth a podcast, but it does not distract or or take away in any any way from the narrative that we're watching. It's just a beautiful accompaniment to what we've been watching. And um, I really am so struck by the direction because I think in the best case scenario, when you have a writer who is also director, this to me strikes me as the best case scenario because Scott knows exactly the story he's written and the story he wants to tell. So he can put the camera where it needs to be. But he is not just a writer directing, showcasing his words to the best of his ability. As you mentioned, there's some real camera movement. Mm-hmm. He's the king of the dollies. They're beautiful dolly shots every time she enters a building for the first time where she's slightly out of frame. Yeah, man. Wait till you she know, goes to Vegas. <laughs> it's My guy it's balls thrilling. out, yeah. And the yeah. production design goes hand in hand with it. And it's, you know, it kind of runs 
in a really wonderful and gratifying way, it runs counter to a lot of the concern trolling I've been doing, which absolutely you can put me, because I'm a writer who struggled with, not personally with directors, but it, that piece of it in TV, if it's a writer's medium, you're kind of both struggling with the mic, right? Like mm-hmm. who's telling the story here and how best to tell it. It's it's seamless here and it's kind of flawless. And again, something that I'd love to talk to him about is so much of the first episode story of Beth's internal experience is told, as you said, silently through not much is happening in the first episode. And e- even when something is happening, it's a game of chess. You know what I mean? So yeah. by the way, shouts also to the sound team who make just castling sound like erotic. It's so exciting the way it fills yeah. your ears. But what he, the way he tells the story in that first episode is with a lot of camera movements and cutaways and um, glimpses of things. And I'm sitting here watching this wondering like, how did he do it? Is it a combination of confidence and absolute vision and budget? Because again, I'll speak from experience. When I was trying to put together montages on Briarpatch, right? Like they're scripted as montages. We generally didn't have the time to, let alone the budget, to be like, now I need to do a camera setup of her hand taking this glass. Like a bunch and of then inserts. I need to do, yeah. Or we had a, you know, you, Chris has used the term correctly, exactly. It's inserts when you go from the, the macro to the micro. And what we did do barely was build in a day of insert day where the C camera team was in the corner of our um, stage with detritus from all 10 episodes of people picking stuff up so right so in episode six when alan cumming looks at his watch uh that's not his hand that's not his arm that is uh jono our ad that's his arm uh looking at the watch um when uh, peter stormare was on briar patch dipping a um an egg roll into queso um nobody wanted that insert i insisted on it that is my that is my vision Mm -hmm. um that was not Peter Stormare's hand. That was me at like 10 p.m., not my hand, but talking to one of our camera guys being like, no, swirl it in the cheese. And even then, it's catch as catch can and piecemeal. You know what I mean? Like there is a fluency here that I love watching where it just seems like every, this, I'm sure this isn't the case in practice, but it feels that way, that everything that they shot is what was intended and it's yeah. lit the right way. And yeah, it kind of reminds that, me of The Crown that way. Like the, the, when the crown is just flying, yeah. it feels like you're like, did you just have all of this in your fucking head? Like, how did you it, just hit this? Every single person is on the same page with you and there is no wasted shots. There it's so no high shots. class. Yeah. It's just a classy way to experience something. There's, I don't want to get too specific because you haven't watched episode three yet. I think that if you watch episode three and you see the relationship between Beth and her foster mother, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about like the really idiosyncratic, very human, very specific depiction of a relationship. People have complicated relationships with their moms. Some people's moms have an outsized impact on who they are for better or for worse. But I have not seen a mother-daughter relationship like this in a while where it wasn't like, here's how my mom fucked me up or here's how my mom was an angel. This is like this person who clearly did not adopt Beth for entirely altruistic reasons, but they arrive at some kind of bond, you know, and it's not sentimental and it's not saccharine. It's just, it's just so well done. I I really like, I hope we can keep watching it over the next couple of weeks and talk about how it winds up concluding. You know, we'll have 
Mandalorian and a bunch of stuff coming in the, in the next couple of weeks and some great guests. And hopefully we can get some folks from, from uh, Queen's Gambit to join us. Are you a chess guy, Chris? What's your chess no, that was. A, oh, can I say one more thing? Not a chess guy. Yeah. But throw me off of, like, give me the Felix Baumgartner suit and drop me into a world. Don't, don't explain anything to me. Don't be like, here. No, now for people who don't know what the Sicilian defense, it's this. I, there's no single character in this movie, in this show, with the exception of Beth's mom, who's ever like, what are you talking about? Or I don't understand. And when that person does say, I don't understand, Beth's usually like, well, you don't understand chess. And that's the end of the conversation. And mm-hmm. it, it's, just, it's just awesome to see a show that's just like, you are now dropped into this and you are going to understand the drama even if you don't understand all the verbiage. Yeah, and and the last thing I'll say about the verbiage is that what's cool is watching expert um, screenwriters like Scott Frank, who is in an elite in, in an elite tier of screenwriters. I mean, we you mentioned sure. some big movies, but he's been rewriting all your favorite movies for twenty years. I mean, the guy he came in and, and like did like Logan. I mean, like he's 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 a lord. So, what's amazing and interesting is to watch people who are screenwriters develop like painters, meaning he doesn't have to paint all the time anymore. Yeah. What's kind of cool about the show is that it's not a dialogue-driven show at all. I mean, we have in, in Beth Harmon and in Anya Taylor-Joy both a character and an actor who excel in um, silence uh-huh. and do their best work processing internal. And But what what's so cool about it being Scott Frank writing a relatively dialogue-light show is that when the characters do talk, it's darts. It's all darts. I was in preparation because sometimes I like to prepare a little bit, Chris. I don't like to let you know, but people are talking about my preparation recently. Yeah, they're, they're, they're responding it shows. To it. it shows. I was uh, revisiting a little of of Mando season one. Okay, and uh, there's a moment in the Bill Burr episode, which you know, I can't believe we didn't talk about it at the time, where he says something to the dude with the big head, the alien with the things coming out of his head. Whatever is it He's about free like, speech? <laughs> he's like he's you know like, he's like blue we, we aliens gotta, we gotta protect are the worst up. yeah um they're the biggest snowflakes no he's basically like that's your sister back there you're gonna you're gonna sell her out and he's just like says something like don't ask me about family like there's just something leaden is said in response and bill burr's like oh that's how it is in that family shouts to principal rooney i'm sitting here being like the alien should be like, we're not that close or something. Like, give me one little yeah. gem yeah. that makes me think like someone someone back there is in the control booth riffing. Scott Frank could do that when it's needed. He just doesn't always do it. And like, that's that kind of sit back and relax. We got this auteur-driven storytelling that feels really nice. I, I think that the the thing you're describing is when you are sincerely on the edge of your seat because you don't know what someone's going to say. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we're so conditioned to be like, when will we find out what Watchmen is about? When will we find mm-hmm. out if, if this or that happens? But you're actually, like, through the POV of Beth, getting to know people. So I have no idea what Walter Scheibel is going to say when Beth says, you know, I want you basically to keep teaching me chess despite the fact that I've gotten in trouble for it. Or I have no idea what her mother is mm-hmm. going to say when she explains what it's like to lose a chess match for the first time. And that's actually like, it keeps you engaged in even the most pedestrian scenes. It's just, it's just A-level writing. You're exactly right. 
It's cool. And this is what we look for because neither of us was checking for the show. And it's number one on Netflix. I don't I mean take that for what it is, but like it's it stayed there all week. It's number one on Netflix. So people are checking it out. This is I mean, we can just keep shoveling praise onto it and, and no doubt we will, but like more of this, please. Like yep. I, I just think that instead of we've been criticizing Netflix for a lot of its decision-making and a lot of its cancellations and its investment in seemingly, quote-unquote, the wrong things. But please, please, in your reorg, Bella Bajaria, please keep a slush fund. The Scott Frank Fund. The Scott Frank Memorial Fund. (laughs) Memorial just because we remember how great he is, not because there's anything (laughs) wrong with him. He's hale and hearty. Yeah. And let people do this shit. You know what I mean? Please, 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 please. Find old books and, and run with it. I will watch like so much garbage on Netflix. It's, it's an easy to use. I just please keep doing stuff like this. Uh, and and, and not all filmmakers can do this, can make no. you know, compelling multi-part things, but there are a couple who can. And, and if this was still Grantland, I would, that would be my next column where I'd be like, Nicole Holofcener's show or whatever. Like, this is still a space when it's done this well. Yeah. Uh, it was great to see you. I will talk to you on Monday where we will try to get the episode up a little bit earlier. We're going to be talking about the first episode of The Mandalorian Season 2, which drops Mm -hmm. Friday. Mm -hmm. People should be checking out Binge Mode if they haven't already. And we have just a ton of really great podcasts on The Ringer right now. But I just wanted to say a special shout out to Righty's House, which is on The Ringer FC feed. Uh, Yes, I love it. to tweet about it. Uh, Ian Wright, former, well, still Arsenal legend and a current pundit um, on BBC's Match of the Day, which is basically like they're inside the NBA for football is doing a podcast with us. He's working with the Stadio guys and it's a delightful listen. So check out that first episode of Righty's House on the Ringer FC feed on Spotify. Can I say, please do this even if you are not a football obsessive or even if you are like I am, like every four years I pretend to be super into it when the World Cup comes around. I have heard people say, this is not to praise ourselves, but I've heard people who say they listen to our show even when they don't know what we're talking about. You and me. Which is often. They they like us chatting and sometimes we don't know what we're talking about. The Stadio podcast is like that. Yeah. The Stadio podcast is two delightful, charming, smart gentlemen who are clearly good friends who know everything in the world about soccer, but they seem to have great lives in Berlin and I yes. love listening to them. It's yes. a great Today, podcast. They, they, they anointed themselves a UK garage duo called, uh, I believe it was DJ Caffeine and uh, MC Hydrate. So it's just, they're, it. they're great. Ringer FC is great. Please check it out. If you want election coverage, check out Bakari, check out Pressbox, check out, I'm sure Higher Learning will hit it next week. Or subscribe to my personal I text Chris tweets from the Nates, like polling <laughs> updates from longtime demographic uh, pollster, me. All right, watch Queen's Gambit. Shout out to Kaya. Have a nice weekend. <laughs>